Hi everyone, and welcome to the first Hyphenates of 2019. We've decided to kick off the year with something fun. Technical problems. That's right, the mic of our guest, Stephen A. Russell, was not working properly and we did not discover this until long after we'd finished recording. We've done what we can to fix it in the mix. Uh, It's a fun chat, so please bear with us and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for January 2019. I am writer hyphen, fourth installment of the trilogy, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is. Hello, I'm writer hyphen, critic hyphen, not nominated, so awards are meaningless, Rochelle Semenovich. And with us, we have a special guest. And I am writer hyphen, critic hyphen, homo, Stephen A. <laughs> Russell, via Glasgow in Melbourne. <laughs> Is that where that accent is from? I've always wondered. I got hit on the head. Ah, right. (laughs) Well, welcome, Stephen. I've been hassling you to come on the show for a long time, and we are delighted. Well, look, it was so... Do you know what? I've been desperate to come on and do this with you guys, but I honestly just assumed that every single one of the favourites would be gone by now. And so I was was kind of stunned when the one that we will do... Was still up for grabs, but I'll, I'll not. I'll not spoil that. We will, we will get to that eventually. But first, we're going to start by looking back at some of the key films released this month. The Great Depression is upon us, so what better way to stave it off than with Mary Poppins Returns, set during the original Great Depression? Michael Banks is grown up and has three kids of his own, but no wife thanks to some convenient fridging. Google it. He's on the verge of losing his house, the one he grew up in that we're all very familiar with. Cue Mary Poppins, the magical nanny who returns to look after all the Banks kids, young and old. Guys, did you need a spoonful of sugar to help this film go down, or were you happy to trip a little light fantastic? Well, I needed um, more than a spoonful of sugar because I just didn't get to see it. But tell me, you two, if it was worth it and if I should. Well, look, I kind of did the ultimate test and I was actually home in Glasgow over Christmas and my brother and his wife jumped at the opportunity to have any time away from my two darling little nephews. (laughs) So I, I took them both to see it and... I feel like, you know, sometimes as critics, we can kind of... You have to remind yourself who the film's for. Of course, we have the same critical responses, but, you know, ultimately, I was there with an eight-year-old and a -a five-and-a-half-year-old, and they had the best time. They literally told me it was the best film they'd ever seen. And they they actually go to quite a lot of movies, and and you know what? I I felt it. There was a lot of joy in this film. Mm. It has... The spirit of the original, Emily Blunt maybe a little bit too on the nose with the prim and proper mannerisms, and maybe that takes away a little bit of her usual warmth that I really like. But I think I think the film overall is, is it's really adorable. Yes, the fridging's slightly problematic. However, oh goodness, what's his name? Ben Washington. Yeah, he he's he's really really quite beautiful in, in mm. that kind of grieving role, but trying to keep it together for yeah. the kids, and and I think that's a very real for all the fantasy elements and the dancing penguins. And, yeah, you know, there, there's some it's a real there's melancholy. A real, yeah, there is. There's yeah. a sad heart in it, and I think there probably always was. You mm. know, the, the the basic mythos of this person who comes in when you most need them, and then when you're not looking disappears again I mean that's kind of like the the whole what kids have to learn isn't it yeah yeah Rochelle were you a fan of the original was that a childhood film for you um yes and no I I did uh revisit it again when my son was little and Mm. I remember him and his best friend um another little girl they were sitting watching it and they were going Oh, she's beautiful. I wish she was our mum. <laughs> and this kind of made, made me feel like, wow, the magic of Mary Poppins. But when you say that um, this version is maybe a little bit prim and proper, I remember Julie Andrews was did have that crispness. She mm. wasn't entirely nice or warm, was yeah. she? It, she had that kind of... Um, stern thing that gave it a kind of, I don't know, a magical quality. No, totally, and I do agree. I, I think it's more, I feel that Emily is so concerned to get that 
Julie Andrews, yes. right? And perhaps it doesn't quite make it her own. Right. She's still brilliant in it, and and the songs are great. I mean, they're maybe not as catchy or memorable, but they, they certainly, you know, I certainly came out humming them, and the, the kids were playing along afterwards, repeating some of the lines. So yeah. you know, it, it definitely kind of work for us. Yeah, it's it's definitely, and it does evoke the spirit of the original, but it also kind of. It's one of those sequels that sort of feels obliged to, with the weight of the original over it, it's sort of obliged to hit all the same notes, but just sort of adapt it a little bit. Like, instead of a chimney sweep, there's a lamplighter. Instead of Uncle Albert on the roof, there's Cousin Topsy on the roof. Instead of kites, there's balloons. It's like direct transposition, which I'm okay with, because that's... I think this isn't the type of sequel you want to get too experimental with. But at the same time, it's kind of like, and here's a different version of it. But on, on the rooftop, I mean, I'm not going to spoil it, but the, there is an amazing little magical payoff at the end where, where the, the sort of, you know, the crazy old guys on the roof, you know, firing the cannon, and there's a bit of a running joke about them being five minutes behind, and it re- segues really unexpectedly into the most marvellous um, finale, and I, I'm not going to yeah. spoil it for anyone, but it, it, it really is a kind of punch to air, yes! You, you set that up from the very first yeah. moment. It also has a specific type of cameo that I'm vaguely obsessed with. There are yes. certain works that do this. So I think we can say Angela Lansbury turns up at some point. Can we say that? I think so, because she's not actually in it. Is she in the original or not? I don't think she is. I think is. it's because Julie Andrews tapped out going, I want to give Emily you know, free reign, I don't want to Well, I think that's something there. she said, because she didn't get enough money. <laughs> I think that's, that's generally that's a very Ooh, nice way to put it. Pessimistic. Well, I, I think I read that somewhere, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe she was genuine, but it, it is one of those things where, you know, where it could be, if, if she is being genuine about that, then I find, I would find the idea of seeing Julie Andrews turn up less distracting than seeing Angela Lansbury turn up and go, oh, that was supposed to be Julie Andrews. Now all I'm thinking about is how disappointed I am that Julie Andrews isn't here. It's Albert Finney in Skyfall. You watch that and you go, well, obviously that was written for Sean Connery and you didn't bother to rewrite it when he said no. So now you've got this big spotlight shining on this character and saying, here it is, your old friend, someone new. And you're like, what What, well, what are you doing? The, the most hilarious thing about all of this is that I was actually on live radio a couple of weeks ago mm. and somehow said there's a magic moment where Julie Andrews turns up <laughs> so I'm blaming that expectation <laughs> yeah, that somehow it. made me you know confuse Angela Lansby and Julie Andrews which basically revoked my gay card so I'm, <laughs> I'm done uh, <laughs> uh, you heard it here first folks <laughs> he's no longer a gay um, <laughs> Our next film is Loro, Hedonism, Corruption, Poolside Parties and Scandal. It's a chapter in the life of Italian mogul turned politician Silvio Berlusconi and also the subject of Paolo Sorrentino's latest film, Loro. The director of The Great Beauty, Youth and The Young Pope assures us at the start of this that it's fiction. But it's filmed predominantly at Berlusconi's real-life luxury villa on Sardinia. We follow a young playboy, Ricardo Scamaccio, as he tries to make contact with his powerful neighbour, the billionaire politician, played by Tony Savillo. The bait is bikini models, especially one very young ingenue, Alice Pagani. The Prime Minister is intrigued, but also caught up in the end of his marriage to his cynical and deeply unhappy second wife, Veronica, Eleanor Sofia Ricci. Meanwhile, the people of Italy suffer in earthquakes and poverty. Lee and Stephen, did this party take off for you and did it leave you with a hangover? Bunga bunga. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, it didn't actually. And I'm, I'm usually a big fan of Paolo Sorrentino. I, I love his sort of slight magical realism. I, I even like his overly sexualised old men. Like, I love great beauty and I love youth. Like, I'm usually on board, but this one just didn't do it for me. And I, I'm not quite sure why it is. I, I feel like you know, it sort of promised to be this great insight into this larger-than-life character, fictitious though it may be. It's still obviously, you know, tell us about Berlusconi. I kind of didn't feel like I was learning much about him. Do you know what? I, so I saw this at the opening night of the Italian Film Festival, which is quite a funny choice because I think a lot of the slightly older crew that go into the opening nights of festivals yeah. were possibly a bit shocked <laughs> by all of the sex and drug-taking. 
But I, I, I do wonder. I'm, I'm, I'm the same. Like I, I love his films. I really like his kind of way of doing nuanced, subtle, emotional things underneath the the, the, the grand craziness. And I, and I don't think that this quite had it. But I do think it's a victim of possibly the massive chop job that's been done mm. because this was actually two feature length films. Yeah. In Italy, so we've been we've been given this kind of cut and shut version, yeah. And I wonder if some of that's got lost. And look, the, the person I do love, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think sometimes we're living in this post satire world where you know every day Trump opens his mouth, you're just like this is ridiculous. You know, we we and I feel like Berlusconi is one of those figures. Like it's actually a mistake to sort of focus on him and where I think the film is far more interesting is in the Scamarchio character mm. who's kind of a wannabe he's a he's a, a petty drug dealer he's a pimp basically yeah a pimp a petty drug dealer yeah. he just wants to be a, you know he wants to validate himself and, and climb up that social yeah. ladder and and it, the film kind of start. I mean I think it's 40 minutes or something before I think before it's nearly you, an hour yeah it's yeah. a long time before and by the when they do yeah. bring him out I'm like ah that's a mistake yeah. he should have been kept almost as a mythical thing you know either just occasionally popping up or maybe never popping up mm. like I think the interesting film is the Scamarchio mm. film and I wish I'd seen more of that yeah because he kind of then falls away and I wonder if the two parts were initially one to each of them. I, I don't think it is because I just looked right. it up before, and I think it, the structure is very similar to the two parts. Mm. And not like I would normally like that kind of thing where you follow someone for an hour and then drift onto the next character. Like there's one brief transition, and then suddenly you're following someone new. And I, I kind of like that screwing with the audience type thing. But here, yeah, I think I, I think I agree with you on this. I would prefer to stick with the the first guy. Yeah, I mean, Sorrentino just does great spectacle, Fellini-esque party scenes, dancing, the drugs, the sort of ecstasy pills raining down out of the sky, the nudity. And you you kind of come away with this feeling of like, that would have been an excellent party to go to. And yet I'm disgusted that I... I think this film does convey that sense of grotesque excess that's also attractive because there must have been something attractive about it for it to happen. Um, but at the same time, with the great beauty, there was still affection. And, yeah. you know, that was, for me, a stunning and philosophically rich film, and this one is not. Yeah, absolutely. And the same with the, the um, you know, youth as well. I feel like, you know, it had all of those moments of excess and, and you know, it, 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 you know surface beauty, but it had that deep yearning. Mm. Mm humanity underneath it all. I will give it props though for a fantastic Kylie Minogue drop in oh, slow. Yes, that was yes. actually a genius <laughs> moment. Yeah. That was an unexpected crop up there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did want to single out the scenes featuring, you know, Silvio and his wife and the end of this marriage. I thought they were handled quite quite beautifully. Um, there was a lot of poignancy in this character, this woman who's Who's, who actually loved him and has lost faith in him. It was probably the best part of the film for me. And I kind of feel the worst, or not the worst, but that showed the promise of where that humanity could have been. Mm. It didn't feel earned to me. I felt like they parachuted in this emotional payoff that hadn't been worked up to at all. That, that let me down that it was a great moment, but I didn't feel that they, they, they did the, the work to get there. Mm. Well, to M. Night Shyamalan's glass, it's only a few weeks after the events of Split, and the Horde, the collection of personalities living inside Kevin Wendell Crumb, has captured more young girls with the intention of feeding them to the Beast, the most fearsome of their number. But only one man can stop him, Unbreakable's David Dunn. Yes, the closing moments of 2017's Split revealed that the film took place in the same universe as Shyamalan's 2000 hit, tantalising the audience with the promise of a showdown between the heroic Dunn, the monstrous Horde, and the villainous Mr. Glass. But instead of an Avengers-style battle spectacle, the majority of the film is a fairly low-key affair, taking place in a psychiatric institution where Dr. Ellie Staple, Sarah Paulson, is given only three days for some reason to convince the men that they're all suffering from delusions and they are not, in fact, super. So did this film bring out your inner child, 
or one of the other 23 inner personalities in you? <laughs> I don't know about that, but I, I can say James McAvoy was the best thing about this film for me. I just loved watching him chew up the scenery and the other actors and, you know, pop out all his different um, personalities and um, the executive function personality. He was in charge of them all. I think he was amazing in this film and the rest of it was very average, very underwhelming. Do you know what, Rochelle? At this point, I just... I can't understand what anyone sees in Shyamalan as a filmmaker now. I just cannot stand it. Um, he is such a one-trick pony. I am sick to death of his excruciating preamble to a, 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 you know, a, a big gotcha moment, a twist. And in this film, the twist is literally an utter anti-climax. The whole film is a boring talk fest that leads to as Lee suggests, it, you know, it, it teases a kind of Marvel showdown and then because he thinks it's really clever, doesn't deliver it, but actually you're just like, well now I've just been bored for a two-hour film for absolutely no reason. And to be honest, even though McAvoy does those roles well, I just find it heinously retrograde that this is how we're depicting mental ill health at this mm. point, mm. you know, in 2019. I'm just like, really? It seemed accurate to me. <laughs> no, I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> Was very cranky. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. Look, there's um, I don't know. Look, it's a mess, but I kind of love it. I kind of love this film. Like it's it's such a strange, low key thing. And like, and Shyamalan's forte isn't. I don't think it's the twists. I think it's long takes of people talking, which revisiting his early work, I was like, oh my god, that is what his films are. They're long takes of people talking. And I kind of like that. Like, it's not... It's so different to what so many other people are doing. And I think he's going with a real... I mean, yeah, talking about the climax, there's a real... Like, to actually spell out the big tower climax that you could have had, it's a real when are we going to get to the fireworks factory mm. kind of moment where you're like, ah, oh, we're in a parking lot. Yeah. Okay. Can I just say that the way that this film resolves itself and basically vindicates the um, central characters is completely unconvincing and ridiculous. So bad. And uh, what, what, why does he love... What is his thing for eliciting wooden performances? Like, seriously, even Sarah Paulson is oh, rubbish in this film. Oh, she's just not mesmerising, which she is oh, in every other thing I've ever seen I know. Seen her I'm like, how did you do that? <laughs> what, what direction did you give Sarah Paulson to achieve this? And why? Well, you've got to say that... I mean, Lee, you love these long takes of people talking, but they're only interesting if you've got interesting characters talking mm. and I don't think these are very well written characters yeah no I'll look to be fair sorry yes, you just I loved that's it true. Didn't you? no no well I loved it but I don't, don't know if I liked it because I don't know we need the next generation we do not need the young Avengers <laughs> <laughs> well look he, he, here's what I find really interesting about this I, I find it fascinating the, the way that superhero films have evolved because the entire genre was adapted from one medium to another. We had them go from comic books to cinema. And so it's in a weird position where it's trying to echo the original evolution it had in print. So when comics went through their postmodern phase with like Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, cinema was inspired by all those works and so got ahead of itself and adapted postmodernism before we had the modernism. Zack Snyder adapted Watchmen before he made Man of Steel. James Gunn made Super before Guardians of the Galaxy. The postmodernism has led the modernism. And so in the early 2000s, we had films like Unbreakable and Mystery Men break down all the superhero tropes before we saw the superheroes. And so this trilogy, which I've just discovered it, is called the East Rail 177 trilogy, based on the train <laughs> thing. Anyway, um, it occupies a really interesting place in the spectrum because it now spans the pre-Marvel Studios films to sort of post-Infinity War. And so the idea of like Unbreakable, the hook of Unbreakable, was that a superhero film in a relatively grounded real world, post-Batman and Robin, the idea of a superhero in a real world setting was remarkable. Now it's basically half the genre. So it doesn't, it doesn't quite work the way it once did. But I think for that reason alone, it's this, this sort of 20-year span has made this trilogy really interesting. Now, look, here's the thing. I can't remember who it is or what credit, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with that one, Lee. But really... Someone, I can't remember who it was, but they said something to the effect of Shyamalan is the kind of person who, he's an uber geek, 
he's annotated everything and he, that's what his films are, is him <laughs> explaining to you why something's great rather than creating something great. And if you want to see you know, something that absolutely gets why comic books are great fun and brilliant and, and then figure out a new and exciting way to show that on the big screen, then scrap this and get yourself along to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, <laughs> which does an infinitely better job of managing those. It is pathways. pretty good. It is pretty good. Uh, and, but I, I do have to give props to my favourite part of the film, which is... And people always love to talk about the ego on M. Night. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no. I love, I love the fact that not only does he put himself in every one of his films, but he's increasingly been giving himself the comic relief moments. But I love that he devotes real estate in this film to explaining to us how the character he played in Unbreakable is the same character he played in Split. It is so superbly unnecessary continuity, and it's just... It's just a ticker box, and I love how awkward that scene is. Oh, my God. The cameo in this film is the worst and just reveals the lack of taste and judgment he has as a director, in my opinion. He's the worst actor. He, He obviously has no ability to reflect on what is a good performance or not if he thinks that that belongs in a film. Absolutely, and we're going to come back to this later <laughs> with my secretly to-be-mentioned later uh... filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> but moving on to something completely different, our next film is Storm Boy, a remake of an Australian classic based on Colin Tealy's 1963 children's novella. It's the story of a boy living in South Australia's remote seaside Coorong and the pelican babies he rescues and raises. The first film was made in 1976, directed by Henry Safran, and this version is directed by Sean Seat, who's primarily worked in television up until now. This version's set in the present, where Storm Boy has grown into a retired industrialist, Michael Kingley, played by Geoffrey Rush. On the verge of a board meeting that will give the go-ahead to mining in the Pilbara, which is a long way away from the Coorong, Kingley reminisces to his granddaughter, Morgana Davies, about the bird that changed his life. We flash back to the story of him as a little boy, played with much fierce cuteness by Finn Little. It's the story of his grieving dad, Jai Courtney, Mr Percival the Penguin and Fingerbone Bill, played by Trevor Jameson, the Indigenous man who befriends them. Did this film fly for you guys? I didn't see it. I'm sorry. Okay. What about you, Stephen? Look, I feel like it's it's sort of a hard one to answer because obviously I grew up in Scotland, so I don't. It's not quite hardwired into my DNA mm. as you know an intrinsic part of my childhood. Mm. However, watching the original, there's something really magical about, it. and and you know I think David Gopal really brings mm. that kind of sense of something much bigger and, and I really love that and, and I actually think the, the new film I've not always been the biggest fan of Jai Courtney but I mm. think he does a good job mm. here as the wounded, lonely man who's really retreated from the world and like you said, Finn Little's great so mm. I think the, 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 the main chunk of it is, is actually pretty good and mm. Trevor Jamison's brilliant in it as well I, I think that the framing mechanism is really Mm. It's just clumsy. Yeah. Like, even it, it, it would be bad enough if it was sort of at the end and the finish. And, and what it really does for me is it kind of tries to mega speaker the, the themes of, you know, looking after the environment, caring for each other, and, and place. And we get that from the main story. We don't mm. need this wistful looking back and trying to fight a mining corporation to, to underline that. And given all the hoo-ha going on at the moment, we don't want to get ourselves in any legal trouble, but it just seems like, I, I, honestly, I would have excised all of that. And the fact that it interrupts the film several times during the middle as well, mm, and it's such mm. a really clumsy directorial choice. Yeah, the film is definitely at its strongest when it's um, focusing on that original story, which is kind of the flashback. Um, it's shot you know, in a way that kind of has a, it's sort of a ripply 
um, cinema effect that makes you feel like it's almost like a fairy tale and you go back to the past and it's just beautiful. I mean, the way this film is shot, the production design, the costumes, the acting, it's very naturalistic. It's very much like the anti-Disney kids film. I think the pelicans are just beautiful. I mean, they raise these pelicans from eggs and the first time they fly on screen is the first time they really fly and oh, wow. or flew. And it has that authenticity about, you know, the natural landscape and all of that. But, yeah, the scenes with Geoffrey Rush are just awkward for so many reasons. And, um, yeah, it doesn't even resolve those political issues about mining in the Pilbara or the Indigenous landowners, that kind of thing. It leaves them up in the air for the next generation to sort of solve. And, like, why? I don't know. You know, we're so used to Australian films not getting the budget they deserve, but this mm. one looks like every single dollar got spent on it, you know? Yeah, I think it's a def- definitely a worthwhile school holiday film for yeah. your kids, but probably not going to ever compete with the classic in yeah. people's nostalgic um, imaginations. And obviously, there are, you know, as, as you alluded to, there are a lot of uh, uh, behind the scenes things, matters before the court that we can't really talk about. So I won't mention that. I'll just ask: uh, Is Jeffrey Rush play Fingerbone Bill, or is that someone? <laughs> is that a different actor? Oh no, no, that's yeah, Trevor Jameson. Okay, okay, uh, just just ask. Him. Just <laughs> no reason. Oh. I was just I was just wondering who who played who. Uh, just oh, uh, no. just curious. <laughs> just trying to get the cast list right in my head. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> the Oscar nominations have been announced and they were met with the usual reactions. Hooray for the films I like, boo to the ones I don't, why was this other thing snubbed, and so on. But this year feels a little different. It looks like nobody's actually going to host the ceremony. The ceremony isn't going forward with its widely mocked most popular category. And there are rumours that categories like cinematography and editing won't be announced at all during the show. Um, So it feels like the wheels have come off the wagon just a little bit. And so I want to ask the question that I actually ask every year but feels a little more pertinent now. Are we placing way too much stock in this awards show? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and thank you for joining us we'll be back with the filmmaker month look I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a qualified rousing defence of the ceremony oh, so good. We, we, we've, got a, we've got a turn for you <laughs> go for it look there, there is no denying the massive systemic problems with the ceremony itself like once again we have no female director represented in best picture or best director which is outrageous you know the yes they've been diversifying steadily the membership and I think that has actually mm. shown the fact that we have you know Roma up for best picture um, Yalitza Arpico you know for best actress there, there's there's lots of good stuff happening there there's the women is still only 39% of the membership that like the solution is absolutely simple stop male membership freeze it for three years <laughs> flood that place with female diverse voices it's not rocket science come on and I think you will very quickly see the results then however having said all of that I don't know whether it's just the old razzmatazz I love I love the 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 ceremony of it I love the carpet and I don't and I think when we really come down to it what is the purpose of it it is a platform to champion film and it does have a real effect. You know, I, I think there is sometimes a real kind of snittiness about, you know, ugh, good, they're just populist or whatever. But in, any, any nominee will find it easier to make their next film. Mm. And I do think it serves a real purpose there. Because obviously Cannes is the big one in terms of selling films, but it's more a, you know, it's, it's got the much higher artistic credentials, but it's also, you know, a marketplace. But in terms of the pure awards, there's no arguing that the Oscars are the, the most popular, and it, and it does signal boost. And when, when sometimes new filmmakers break through, or you know smaller films break through, like for instance Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, mm. that is going to have a huge sure. you know, benefit to them. But a lot of those films have already sort of achieved that recognition, recognition by the time we get to the Oscars. Like, we know that obviously these are the films are going to get nominated for the Oscars and there are very few surprises in there mm. it's almost a fait accompli by the time we get 
to that. But isn't that looking at it from the critical perspective? Absolutely. I think your average punter doesn't have a clue about the SAGs. Maybe the Globes, they wouldn't know the Producers Guild. Like for, I think for a lot of Joe Blows out there, mm. the Oscars are the ones that they, they notice. If they see, probably arguably, if they see that more than the Cannes Laurel, mm. you know, the, yeah, the, yeah. It, it probably is the one that will get your average punter in to see a film they might not have otherwise seen. So that, that's why I would defend them on that. Is there, I hear the phrase Oscar worthy thrown around a lot, but it's also from people who complain about the result of almost every category. But, so, and that's something I've always wondered about, that if, if the Oscars themselves have been, are they not invalidated by all these supposedly wrong choices or incorrect, why did it go to X over Y like every year? then doesn't the term Oscar-worthy become meaningless? And, like, I, I feel like the Oscars, the results, in, in the eyes of the people who love them, the results never live up to our idea of what they could be. I generally love it. But, Rochelle, I'm really keen to hear what... I want to hear your absolute no to the Oscar. Look, you don't... No, I can't give you an absolute no, because I do love going to the industry Oscars day where we all watch it on big screen at the Nova mm. with little snacks and get dressed up and yes. you know I, I love it I love an awards show I do but it's absolutely meaningless I think in terms of like the best film very rarely wins in my opinion and by the time we get to that point I think we're all too drunk to really <laughs> care too much uh, no it just feels like a, a an anti-climax and this year like often when the nominations come out I just scramble to go and see all the films that I haven't seen yet. There's usually a couple at least that I haven't seen. This year, uh, there's no scrambling. I, I feel like I don't really care. I, I feel like this whole process is just so compromised. Um, I am really pleased to see that there's a lot of, um, well, a, a number of, of films with, with black, you know, yeah. themes or directors. Spike Lee's nominated. Yeah, Only the really. sixth Plus black one. director that's to be insane. nominated for best director. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're getting some progress in terms of that. But I haven't seen Black Klansman, so I have no idea whether that's and look at a worthy great. film. I think Chirac's the better one. But it's still, you know, it's great mm. to see that there. And even Black Panther, like, mm. part of the reason I think that populist thing was so annoying was it would... That, that, that it brought in a kind of class system and almost a sneering then yeah, because yeah. for instance what w where would Mad Max Fury Road have gone then when it was there you know when it swept the board with six awards it would have been punted probably into the popular which award. is why that announcement sort of made me feel like oh, wow they're really jumping the shark they're chasing the audience rather than holding on to a, a certain place of prestige well, that they own. Yeah, what they, I mean, I really do think the solution is simple. I think they just really need to, I think they need to cap memberships. I think once you've served 20 years, you should get booted off, um, which would get rid of a lot of the dead wood of, you know, ancient old white men. Mm. And yeah, I, th I think you need to constantly refresh that membership. You need to make sure it is gender parity. Mm. You need to make sure there is a good diversity out there. I think once once feedback continues to improve, we'll continue to see better results. And look, there are some positive signs like Roma and Cold War. Mm. You know, two non-English language films up for Best Director. It's mm. there. There's some really positive signs sure. in there. Do you like? I, I totally get why someone who wins an Oscar would care. Like, I think they are the ones who should be the most invested. Like, it's a huge deal to win one, but. The people who I, I, I guess one of the reasons that I've sort of gone off it in recent years is watching people invest in them so much that they're like, oh, I'm so annoyed that my favorite film didn't win, like the horse race of it all. Like, mm. do you like it less? Do you like your film less? Because ultimately, at the end, it's you and a DVD player, and you get to love it for the rest of your yeah. life. Like, I don't understand why people get so uh, passionate about about that when they don't have a personal stake in it. But then you just the reason isn't it because of passion of course when you of it's course like when sport. you love why do we care if our football team wins really i mean it's all so meaningless well that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's yeah, the but point <laughs> of sport is that you want, like your team is there to win like the point of making a great film is, isn't to win a horse race i think one of the other things is that it's very very dispiriting in fact disgusting when a film that you think was bad mm -hmm. wins and then you're like well the whole process is just a load of crap because if a film like Bohemian Rhapsody gets oh. best film we are going to just know that none of the other awards even the really good ones can mean quite as much but hasn't that happened already oh it happens it? every year yeah <laughs> which is why we're getting yeah. increasingly cynical Lee and I think you know 
our our feelings about the awards this year might have more to do with us. I think so too. I think Stephen's probably right about this, <laughs> and I'm just being a grump, and uh, I'm willing to leave on that note. <laughs> no, I, I do think there is a certain element of performativity of hating it, and then yeah. when you're at the awards, yeah. like, this is amazing! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was, there was that little video that was going around, I think it was Richard E. Grant, was he nominated for Can oh, You Ever yes. Forgive Me? That was lovely. And he says, look, I'm so happy to be nominated, even though I think these awards are meaningless. But it's nice. But yeah, yeah. And but he looks so overjoyed as well. Like, and Spike Lee, like people, obviously he's has this fractious relationship with the Academy, and so you see it being announced. You know that someone's videoing him in his living room with the whole family, and they go bananas. So, yeah. You know, he's you wouldn't think he's someone that's necessarily spent his whole career just waiting for the validation of the Academy, and yet the nomination meant a lot to him. Okay, I, fine. You've sparked you. a light in my cold, dead heart. <laughs> I, will, I will let the Oscars back into my soul. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Stephen, tell us, which filmmaker have you picked for your Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month? I have picked French-Canadian wonderkind Xavier Dolan. Xavier Dolan. Who I just, you know, he's one of these he is a force of nature, hey. I mean, he, he wrote his first film, I Killed My Mother, when he was, I think, 16 mm. years mm. old. And having, he's, he's got this incredible backstory, you know I mean? Like, his parents split when he was two years old. He's, his dad's a Cairo-born club singer. His mum uh, is a, a civil servant. Um, he, by the age of four, he was the star of one of Canada's you know, French Canada, French Canada's biggest known drugstore ads. So he was like, and all these people would come up and him in the street and pinch his little cherub cheeks. <laughs> he would have been so cute. Which he loved. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's absolutely gorgeous. Mm, like, that's, it's it's got to really be said. Is. It's ridiculous. So he's, you know, he's a model. He also dubs a whole raft Ron Weasley. of Hollywood stars. Yes, I just discovered that. He's yeah, won in the French Republic. He's Taylor Lautner in, in Twilight. He does Aaron Taylor oh. Johnson, Eddie Redmayne, Dylan O'Brien, and Nicholas Holt. <laughs> and he's still to this day, he, he li- literally, I think he actually stops all of his films for two days to go off and do some dubbing as well. Really? Yeah. So he's this incredible, you know, force. And and b- by the age of 20, he has, you know, scraped together money from all of his advertising work and basically begged, borrowing and stealing from everyone he knows to, to deliver what I think is just such an emotionally rich bonkers kind of take on you know heightened melodrama I mean it, it sets the precedent for everything he's going to do you know you've got oppressive claustrophobic domesticity and, and these you know Anderval plays uh, his you know, <laughs> god bless her she's just trying her best she's a, a really she's actually a really nice woman mm. a little highly strong a little OTT She's not inherently evil. She's not doing anything bad. And, 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 and so Delan, as Hubert, plays this sort of amplified version of all of us. Bratty teenager. Bratty teenager. <laughs> yeah. Who despises her for no discernible reason, even though she, in the split marriage, is the parent who has stayed with him. Mm. And... You know, she's, she's quite quiet, he domineers her, he sets up loads of things that you're going to see heaps of, like crazy dinner party mm. from hell, uh, massive fights in cars, and there's all these sort of templates, and he, and he says to her at, what, at one, one point, I cannot believe <laughs> when I try to imagine the worst mother in the world, I can do no better than you. It's it's such a great line. It's remarkable that, I mean, aside from the fact that he was so young when he wrote, Mm. I actually, I haven't crunched the numbers, but Mm. I'm fairly confident that Dolan is the youngest filmmaker we've covered on this show because, Mm. you know, our our rule about you know the five film minimum rule really excludes most young filmmakers. But he's put out six. He's got two others in the can. He hasn't turned thirty yet. I know. At the time of this recording. Yeah, yeah, and. And what I find remarkable about that is that you look at all the the mannered, affected films that 20-year-olds try to make for their first film, and there's nothing forced or unrealistic 
about this film. But what's remarkable is that kids usually make films about themselves being misunderstood and misrepresented. He he completely flips this. This is, uh, you know, he basically presents his own generation as erratic and impossible. I mean, he sort of flips it a bit as the film goes on. It becomes more complicated. Yeah. But it is basically a film about himself being erratic and unreasonable. And, look, I really... I love all the complex relationships between adults and teenagers that he continues to go... Well, adults and children Mm. of any age that he goes back to because he also introduces the second of his great muses, and this is another thing I love about Dolan. He's kind of like a modavar in a temple to women. You know, Mm. he's every bit as much... You know, it really annoys me when people describe him as a narcissist because I don't think he is at all. I don't think, as you said, he's not uncritically looking. This is it's mm. definitely probably his most autobiographical film, mm. but he's not he's not putting him at the centre of it. It really is. Uh, I think I think the best way to disprove the idea of him as a narcissist is that his second film is basically about two people in love with like this incredibly pretty person. Yeah. And Dolan plays one of the guys obsessed plays the guy obsessed with the pretty guy, not the pretty guy himself. Yes. Even though Dolan, Dolan is clearly one of the prettiest people Absolute ever to be on film, <laughs> and I think he should have cast himself as the person everyone is lusting over. But, but yeah, and, yeah. and so you know, women are at the heart of his films. Yeah. He literally has three recurring muses, mm-hmm. all of whom are incredible actors, like Anne Dorval mm. who has, he plays his mum Chantal here is incredible, and then he has this really complex relationship within this film with another of his, of the landscape muses Suzanne Clement, mm. who plays the sort of teacher and this is the, the sort of premise of the film that he lies to her because he's such a brat that his mother is dead, and it's obviously a lie that is very soon disproven mm. And, but that interests this teacher in what is going on here and she forms this initially very you know, proper teacherly care of, you know, duty of care but then because this is a Delan film it very quickly gets a bit muddier and mm. there's some strange sexual chemistry going on between, between him and the teacher mm. and then then there's the you know the, how that balances out with the relationship with his mother. And but one of the things I love again, you know, counter argument to the narcissism is that the the kind of major emotional beat of the entire film is the moment when his mother, who has been subjected to this torrent of despicable abuse mm. for the entire film, then you know gets a phone call that's basically laying into her son and it's the first and only time where she legit cracks it and yeah. <laughs> blows up in his defence and mm, yeah. it's just a really beautiful beautiful moment and that, and that thing about like having that, these incredible roles for, for the, this troupe of actresses isn't just that he keeps giving them starring roles it's that he has them play like they're barely recognisable from film to film mm. like uh, both Duval and Clemens completely it's just remarkable the range they have even like across all of the films but particularly if you compare I Killed My Mother to Mommy where they're both basically say, playing the same role the yes. the, uh, the yes. uh, unreasonable mother and the teacher the kid befriends and yet even in those same roles they're playing completely different characters they're just and they're incredible physically different like I mean how, how can the Suzanne Clement who's the teacher and yeah. um, I Killed My Mother be the girlfriend of, you know, the emerging trans man yeah. in, in Lawrence anyways. How, how can that physically be the same actor? It's, it's, it's really mm. mind-blowing. She, it? should, she should be Meryl Streep level. Like, she's just... Inc- I, I was just blown away watching all these films again. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the sort of... Um, the, the addition, the, the triumvirate is, is, you know, triangled out by... Uh, Natalie Bay, who shows up as the TV throwing, you know, the seminal rock star moment where she she gets she plays this Isabel Huppert kind of icily austere mother um, to Lawrence and Lawrence anyways. But then when the father's not really accepting, the, um, you know, uh, her emerging identity, mm-hmm. smashes the television, mm-hmm. and then she becomes the incredible mother and and my personal favorite which gets a lot of beef and mm. um, it's only the end of the world yeah mm. now i do not for the life of me understand the pushback to this film because for me 
it's the absolute distillation of everything he's been doing. You know, it's it's centered on this claustrophobic domesticity. You know, where you know he he adapts the the play by Jean Luc Lagarde, and he has this you know very autobiographical for Lagarde play of a playwright going home to tell his family that he's dying. Now Lagarde, you know, died from. HIV-related illness, and so it's this really melancholy piece. But he's been estranged from his family for twelve years, and so he goes back. And Natalie Bay, this time rather than being icily austere, is the is the more typically Dolan, over the top. Like I mean, she her when when he walks in the front door, she's literally the the, the only reason she's annoyed that she didn't know he was turning up quite at that time is because she's literally. In the middle of doing her nails, so she gets the hair dryer out to you know speed them up. So she's perfect, and it's this beautiful chamber piece where she just desperately loves him, and 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 I feel again this is the thing about Delane. Yes, it's all hyper, you know, it's amplified, but its emotional core is absolutely true. Sometimes families drift apart, and sometimes they don't know why, mm. and. She desperately loves him. There's this incredible scene when they finally get a moment on their own in a shed, and she's having a cheeky bag. And it's Gaspar Ulliel here. This is another one where Dolan's on the bench, mm. and he does this with Lawrence Enoways and Mommy, and it's only the end of the world. And interestingly, when he is interviewed about getting annoyed about narcissism, he makes this point that when he thinks he's written an absolutely brilliant role, he, he wouldn't feel that he could take that himself. Mm. So I'm kind of reading between the lines that maybe they're his three favourite films as well. Mm. But there's this beautiful moment when, when Uliel's in, 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 in the shed with Bay, and she just says to him, you know, she takes his head in her hands, and, and she just says, they're all terrified of how little time they have with you. Just tell them what they need to hear. Tell them what they need to live. And it's so heartbreaking. And, you know, the whole film is built on beautifully heartbreaking one-on-ones. Like, you know, Vincent Cassell is just a ball of fury as his older brother because he can't cope with the fact that, you know, he walked away... Leah Sedu, who you know is you know came through in, a, in another kind of great queer, and um, blue is the warmest color. She has never really known her brother. She was so young when he left, so she doesn't know who he is. And then you've got beautiful Marion Cotillard as the sister-in-law, and they have the most spectacular moment. Oh my god, that moment! It's where, perfect. You know, I think that was. I'm not a huge fan of this film, I've got to say, Stephen. It's okay. very claustrophobic and I wanted to get away from these people, um, which is kind of the point. But that moment that he has with her without words, the music swells and you just... It's like this dialogue with mm. th- with looks, yeah. you know? And the, uh, yeah, and as you say, the music is so intense and it just keeps going. Mm. Just two people looking at each other. It's the most perfect melodramatic moment. Uh, I don't know how you have the balls to want to do something like that and the talent to pull it off. Mm. Like, I couldn't believe what I was watching. It's just remarkable. And here's the thing. It does exactly... It is the distillation, distillation of Dolan because mm. it is a melodramatic moment and yet one that's full of subtle nuance. Like, the, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but the way I read that scene is that, that Cotillard's character, Catherine suddenly understands mm. that he is dying mm. and that that's what he that's why he's come home like it, it's it's conveyed and I was I was thinking earlier about this you know one of the Dolan is such a beautiful visual mm. you know he has a great visual language you know oh my god I mean the first scene in I Killed My Mother yes where we see um Andoval's mouth in close-up mm. as she's eating a creamy pastry yes. and just how disgusting that is to her son I mean yes. you know when you're when you're related to someone and you watch them eat sometimes, it's just really repulsive. Yeah. And he captures that. Absolutely. <laughs> and look, I think that the first scene in 
it's only the end of the world. You can, it's sort of quite abstract. It, it becomes clear that you're looking at the sun. Who I don't think he's ever named in the film. Oh, no, he is. What's his name? It's, oh, goodness, I don't know. Anyway, he, you're looking through the window on, of a plane, and, and it takes a little while to realise that's what's happening, but the very next thing that happens is a little kid from behind reaches round and puts his tiny hands mm. on his eyes, and I just thought, it just built such a rich, a kind of mythological image, you know, straight away you've got the idea of, you know, like pebbles on eyes, like it's a burial, and it made me immediately think of what's seen or what's not seen, and the idea of kind of prophecy, that he's bearing mm. this message home that actually is never delivered in the film, other than through that, the eyes, that's the only actual communication of what he goes home to say. And I, oh my goodness, I'm getting goosebumps even thinking yeah. about that, I think. <laughs> I can see. Uh, <laughs> I, I love his... That he, I mean, we were talking a little bit about magical realism with Sorrentino earlier. Mm. And I love... I, th- I think Dolan gets away with it so well because he uses it so sparingly. Maybe one or two moments in each film, if that, yeah. where um, you have these little fantasy sequences in I Killed My Mother... Uh, the widescreen adjustments in the yeah the the changing of the ratios in Mummy, but also Tom at the farm, yes, and that just enhances something that has been so rooted in realism up until that point, and it's just that little like he really earns it, and it really pushes you over the edge like in terms of of sort of being drawn into what you're watching. Yeah, I think I think the only one where it really kind of goes to the wall with it a bit more is Lawrence Anyways, you know what happened with the they're walking up the road the and there's laundry, the clothes coming the clothes, through yeah. there's the, the wall of water you know they kind of almost like the Kubrick blood flow yeah and that's maybe the only one that kind of really lets loose with that and that was interesting as well because obviously for all my killed my mother heartbeats is also a very intimate little one as you mm. said where he you know they're, they're, they're best friends who are both besotted by the same guy again something we've probably all been there when you're when you're a teenager and you're kind of you're a team, but then as soon as you know a mutual like comes into the picture, all of a sudden you've got these complex relationships of, you know, as you said, the Oscars horse race. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, but I want this one. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so Lawrence, anyway, is sort of it's the first one that really expands on the complexity of plot. You know, dealing with um, you know a, a male to female transition, and there's some beautiful stuff in there as well like when um, Lawrence, who maintains the name the whole way through Mm. she is faced with the school board Mm -hmm. who are sacking her because of this and it's done on a a really dubious technicality that covers their back but it's abundantly Mm. clear Mm. that it's from a homophobic place a transphobic place and that you know, I kind of thought that was he's really expanding his remit, and it's the first film that kind of takes a step out of the house as well, and becomes more. You know, there's a lot more landscape in Lawrence anyway because they and he's not in it. Well, oh, yeah. is he? Is he in no, it? No, that's no. The, that's the first but, one. But um, he's not even in it as a cameo. So, yeah, it's um, really. That's amazing. a very ambitious film. That one. It is, and that was uh, yeah, that was certainly the first time I heard of Delan. Really? Was that film? Yeah, and then suddenly he was inescapable like every every film of his was an event yeah um to, and, yeah do you know what i think that's some of the pushback too because it's really funny i remember you know i killed my mother walked out of can i think with two prizes from the director side back director's week and you know gushing praise like the, what is this you know what has happened and yet even then I'm not sure whether it was, I think it might have been the New York Times again. Even then, there's a little bit of sneering criticism about, eh, he's just a jumped up kid. And I do wonder if sometimes that tall poppy thing comes in too. You know, he yeah. is so young. He was. The he backlash was, is it, inevitable. Yeah, it was inevitable. Yeah. You knew it was coming right from the start that some people were going to get uppity about him. Almost every review you read of his films will say something about, this is a good film, this is a great film, even, but. But it could have been better, and we think in his next work he might fulfil his promise. You know, as yeah. though he's kind of like this this amazing child who hasn't quite grown up yet. 
and you know what I just think it's so ridiculous because you know you mentioned Tom at the farm mm. and then so this is now the fourth film and then this is when I really thought my goodness because to me this is Dolan does Hitchcock mm. oh mm. totally mm. the Bernard Herman-esque score for what is yeah. ostensibly a small drama is just I, genius I cannot think of a film that has more unnerved me via the score and the vision of an empty house yeah. more you know like the, the childhood of a leader did this very similar thing where from the outset of that film you're you're on a back foot. It, it plays like a, a thriller slash horror film you know what I mean like the racing through the cornfields corn that cut you you know like yeah. my goodness there's so many tropes in there and you, you realise just how film literate he is he's mm. doing a lot of these mm. deliberate things and it's interesting because you know Lawrence anyways did which won the Queer Palm at Cannes that year you know it, it, that was his first big film where he went to 2 hours 40 and then he immediately follows it with you know a kind of 100 minute mm. short sharp blast Tight. You know, yeah. really tight again back to that. Mm. It's sort of like the Marie Celeste. He walks into an empty house. He's, you know, the boyfriend, his dead boyfriend. He's decided to turn up pretty much unannounced for the funeral and nobody's in the house. And then bit by bit, you, you, you know, you get um, the, the, the family comes in and Pierre Yves Cardinal, my goodness, if you ever thought, you know, we were talking about how much of a babe Dolan is. Terrible hair in this again, again yeah. against the narcissist. He looks point. like a, he looks like corn. I think Shot. that was the yes. point. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Terrible kind of wavy blonde bleach. Yeah, yeah. bleach, but it works so well. I mean, it's deliberate. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, so immediately you're looking at Pierre of Cardinal, who is stunning, and then you have this complex relationship again. So technically, he's gone home. You know, the the um, Lise Roy is the grieving mother. Does not know her son was gay, mm. so or does she? she or can, does yeah. she? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's all there's a lot of ambiguity about everyone's role here. And yeah. So the brother is ostensibly warning him off in a very, you know, we've got we don't know his backstory. He's clearly a very angry, aggressive man, and mm. he's clearly been shunned by the entire community. And yet, even though on the surface he's saying, "Do not reveal." your nature as a gay man do not you know drag my brother into this he has three confrontations now the first one middle of the night grabs him in the bedroom the next confrontation grabs him well mid shower the third confrontation in a bathroom stall these are like these are literally gay sex tropes you know and the, yeah. the chemistry between them is off the charts. At one point they're dancing mm. in a barn. Then you've got, you know, this drunken scene behind the barn where they essentially almost kiss and you're you're willing it to happen, but he won't let it happen. Yeah. You know, he's a master at holding that tension there. And I just I just think it's that it's one of my favourites. And that ending is just it's one of my it's probably my favourite ending of all of his films it's just beautiful and again just the perfect use of music because he does switch between that sort of cinematic orchestral score and you know pop songs like mm. he kind of uses I mean he you know not exclusively pop songs but he does find the right place to deploy them in such unexpected moments oh it's not a Dolan film if you do not have a kind of neon lit close up slow mo you know, dance interlude. Yeah. <laughs> it's essential. It's in basically all of them. You know, and and they're often key revelatory moments as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the electro pop canon mm. here is gorgeous. And and um, oh, which one? It's it's mommy that ends with the Lana Del Rey. Yeah, oh, um, yeah. born to die. Yeah, which he is, loves the ballad, doesn't he? he? Does. I mean, I just found out that he directed the. The video clip for Adele's "Hello." I know, which is so, so bizarre and brilliant. <laughs> I just love it. Yeah, and then you know, there's the Moby drop of natural blues at the end of yeah. um, "It's Only the End of the World." Rufus Wainwright at the end of "Tom at the Farm." Yes, yeah, he, he, he so loves good. it, and, that, and even in the music choices and the. You know, they're all gripping in sensuality. Every single one of his films is queer, even when it's not. Mm. You know, I mean, Mommy is not... He's young enough as a, a way... You know, and, and this is actually another bench one. Um, we have Antoine Olivier Pilon 
plays the, the son of Anderval there, who's this, you know, out of control, aggressive team. And you've got this slight dystopian setup that Canada, you can now surrender your kid to a hospital mm-hmm. if they're too much. So you kind of know from the start that clearly that's the, the trajectory of you mm-hmm. know, betrayal and and it's 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 amazing, but yeah, you've got um, and that heartbreaking sequence, which oh, uh, you just kiss <laughs> the uh, yeah the whole uh, well, the, well the imagined future yeah where she imagines oh. the future he could have, which is it's been done a couple of times. I, I remember it was done in the Sopranos. It was done in you know where you used to sort of look wistfully off before the inevitable. You know the 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 axe falls wistfully often imagine the life you could lead if everything goes right and it's yeah. just uh, well, well, that's the, I mean that's the greatness of the film is it builds in the tragedy from the very start it's not it's not playing games mm. you, you're told mm. where this is going you know where it's going and that it's like watching Romeo and Juliet you spend the entire play or film willing them just not to die and <laughs> you know you know what their destiny is and and there's something brilliant about that and again you know he that it's great casting um and but yeah in terms of the the sexuality it might not be specifically queer but the character is young enough that actually that's you know who knows where he's going to go but then you have all the oddity of the the kiss with his mother again the mythological stuff the kind of beautiful mm. They kiss, and then you know. Once again, Suzanne Clement is a teacher across the road who seems to be, you know, she's she's kind of withdrawn from life. She's almost mute at the start until she meets this crazy family, and then there's a weird sexual tension triangle going on between all of them, and and it is sort of counter you know, what, what's expected, what's right, you know, they're, they're, those themes of queerness are there even when it's not explicit, and I love that about it, and I, I, I'm just little, you know, again, dance interludes, car fights, and there's a glorious, I don't know if this is deliberate, but there's a glorious little visual game early on where there's a digital clock, and it briefly says, hello, and then hell, <laughs> and it very much reminded me of that fantastic moment in mm-hmm. Batman Returns when Selena, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer's Selena, Selena Kyle has just transformed and she gets back to her apartment in Gotham and she has a hello there sign in neon and she smashes it with a chair and it ends up saying hell here. Mm. I, I don't know if that's a long bowl, but I just really like that I kind of, <laughs> you know, just if it, I, I'm, I've decided that was a nod yeah. to Michelle Feinberg. Sure, <laughs> of course. Um, it, it's interesting that like, he seems to be, we talked about his troop, he seems to be sort of casting a bit of a wider net at the moment. Mm-hmm. Like he, um, you know, Marion Cotillard and mm-hmm. Leah Seydoux and so on for in, in It's Only the End of the World. And we've just seen at time of recording, uh, it's just a couple of days after the trailer for The Death and Life of John F. Donovan came out uh, with, again, a whole new, you know, Jacob Tremblay and, and Kit Harrington and all these people. And I love that there's, there's a line in his, in his first film uh, about, uh, what is the line? Uh, he was obsessed with Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic. Yeah. He wrote him a letter in English. And that's something Xavier Dolan did. He, he famously talks about the letter he wrote to Leonardo DiCaprio, hoping that they would work together one day. And he's, it looks like this, uh, this new film, Donovan, is basically about that. It's about a kid who writes to his favourite movie star. I'm so annoyed that we have been denied this for so long. This was at <laughs> Toronto last year. Oh, and wasn't... again, there are reviews out there that are glowing, yeah. but there's, there's again, this backlash seems to persevered and I suspect that's why it's not got a broad release yet Yeah, because there are, there are reviews that say it's brilliant and I'm really, because I was told, all the, you know, there was lots of who ha it's only the end of the world literally got booed for 10 minutes at Cannes and yeah, I went in and, and it floored me and I, I, I saw it at the Sydney Film Festival last year where I actually won the top prize mm. and I was sitting with one of my best friends and as soon as the credits ended he bolted one direction I went in the other I took myself into a fire exit and I cried shaking for 10 minutes like it really hit me and Mm. so I kind of I want to make up my own mind I have a feeling that I am going to think differently about the death and life of 
John F. Donovan, which, yeah, it's really interesting because from what reading between the lines, what little I try not to read too far ahead if I haven't seen a film yet, mm. but what, what, from what I can understand, it's the, you know, a film star has died and this young kid who'd struck up a relationship is now the key character of the film. And yet, there's obviously then questions about the propriety of of their relationship. Right. And it sort of puts questions, I believe, as to you know that that was that okay or not. And I find that interesting. It's got an amazing cast. You've got Natalie Portman, Sandy Newton, Kathy Bates, Susan Sarandon, mm. out of control. So I just want to see it. And because he is like a fast bender, except touching wood. Please do not die horribly in a hail of drink and drug. Thank you. Yes, that would be nice if you could join that. It's a request from Hills Five. Yeah, he's already got another one in the can. Yeah. Well, I don't know whether it's actually Matthias and Maxime or Matt and Max. It seems to ha- have two different right. names, which is again playing on that queerness that's not necessarily explicit because, as I understand, it's about two straight guys who share a kiss and then them dealing with the aftermath of what that means and I think that's a lot of Delan's films Mm -hmm. isn't it it's like this has happened this is where we're at but what does that mean Mm. and what does that say about our natures Mm. yeah what what would be your favorite if you had to pick one so of of the of the ones that are out, you know, not not including those last two, it is it's only the end of the world, and I know that sounds like a completely, you know, I'm just deliberately being contrarian, but it's it's it really I don't know why I'm not I'm not why why is that one the one that gets me so much, and you know I have a perfectly well reasonably well you know. My family isn't that fraught. <laughs> <laughs> I love my mom. It's a normal family. Me and my mom and David go on really well. My dad is dead, but you know, it's not. It's it's not. There's no big massive drama, and yeah, I think there is something in the queer experience of that that huge gap between you know coming out. I I, I think that 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 writes a lot of stuff into your DNA about where you belong, whether family will accept you, whether there's something inherently, I don't know, doomed about, you know, I, I came out when it, when it was still a big no-no in Scotland, you know, it was, it was, you know, still not as cool as it is nowadays, um, and, and I think there's something really, although that's not the explicit story of It's Only the End of the World, I think there's something great about this idea that he has something held within him that he can't tell his family and that there's an estrangement there that's slightly different with each character because look Delan is amazing at doing mother-son relationships but when he does slightly expand that circle be it Tom up the farm whether it's you know the three-way of mommy or or here I think those those relationships just get bigger and bolder and richer and, and visually the films have gotten more and more striking as they go along too and, and I'm sure it's not for everyone but the and again I don't know how much we want to spoil about the films or not but the, the cuckoo imagery at the end oh, you know it just it kills me every time and especially when you know Moby drops yeah yeah it's a great <laughs> moment well it's been a lot of fun finally having you on the show and going through Delan's films. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I hope it wasn't too outrageously gushy. <laughs> I know it was, but that's, that is what we asked Amazing. for. Amazing. Yeah. Delan should be proud. Uh, would be? Would be? I don't know. Arc. I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> well, thank you, and we'll see the rest of you next month. Bye-bye. I'm going to a town that has already been I'm going to a place that has already been disgraced I'm gonna see some folks who have already been let down I'm so tired